Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Wilma Hashimoto on the show. Wilma is the Executive Director for CASA of Fresno and Madera Counties. She has dedicated her career to positively changing the trajectory of at-risk children. Before becoming the director, Wilma had a long career as a classroom educator. Our conversation will give you a broad overview of what CASA volunteers do, their impact, and what we need to do to keep supporting at-risk kids in our communities. Let's meet Wilma and Baker will take us there. Fresno's best. Wilma, where do you like to eat in Fresno? Where do I like to eat in Fresno? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I love poke bowls. So oh. anywhere that serves a poke, I'm there. What's, what's a good poke bowl for you? What do I like? You know what? Anything that has really good teriyaki sauce onto fresh salmon. Mm, so you prefer mm. the salmon as opposed to the tuna? That's correct. Salmon. Why, is that? Why? Probably I like the texture the taste just yeah i will choose you know how you can offer it's like what three scoops do you want for your protein Mm -hmm. uh salmon salmon and salmon (laughs) i i i'm one of those people that really loves to go hard on the crunchies on top because i just love like the crunchy toppings (laughs) and i love all these places where you just can just pile on all the vegetable extras like at made, which is kind of Mediterranean style bowls and the poke bowls. Like I just, I love that because I just love the having control of all the accoutrement that comes with my little bowl. It's, it's wonderful. Well, you talk about crunchy. My base is not necessarily the rice, the noodles or the salad. Wonton strips would be perfect as a base. Pile on the salmon and just, everything on top. We're good. Sounds wonderful. Is there a preferred poke place you like to go to in town or just really any of them? I'm getting, if I tend to pick one that I t- as my go-to place is any of the butterfish. Mm, yeah, they do it really well there. Mm-hmm. All right. So we're going to jump into a bunch of things, Casa. And I have kind of to kind of start for people is to give some kind of context and some definitions. So CASA stands for court, excuse me, court appointed special advocates. Uh, What are court appointed special advocates? Yes. So our mission is to recruit, train, and support the advocates for children who are in the foster care system. So our advocates actually are assigned either to one foster youth or one sibling set to spend, they're assigned to spend time to learn about their case because every foster youth is assigned a court case and be there for that. So it's that constant unpaid adult to help one accompany the child or be the voice for the child in the court systems as they're trying to determine the next steps. Where's the best placement? Is this a great placement? How are they doing in school? Are we keeping up on all the medical things? So that's the side of where it comes to be court appointed because they are sworn in by a judge. They also have the ability to represent them in the educational system, just as like an adult would say, you know, my child is not doing well in school. I suspect may need have to, you know, can we see what we can do? Or is there, you know, a little bit, someone's not being nice to them. Can we look further into this where a child may not be able to voice it themselves or know how to, but this advocate would be able to. Mm, Okay. And what does it mean to, is that kind of what it means to be the eyes and ears of the judge is collecting information for the court system. So the judge can make better decisions about the child's welfare. Is that the, is that an accurate description? That is an accurate description. And, you know, when there's so many children in the foster care system, so in Fresno, Madera alone, there could be upwards of 3,000. So how does a judge is able to have the details of a child 
and to make those decisions. So how nice it is to read a report, a detailed report on the specific child. And no caller. I'm so sorry. No worries. There we go. So um, I imagine that part's edited out. Oh yeah, I got it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But how nice though, to have a report where there's a person assigned and has visited the child once a month, has had these conversations, that has a relationship that is a little more in depth and open than just something just like, you know, to kind of guess about. And this is what I said, you know, every court case, every child, because they're part of the child welfare system has a file. And in that file is a file number. It's 186.486. Well, that tells me nothing about an individual child who had likes and dislikes, aspirations. And when they were removed very suddenly from their homes, their world was rocked. There was no, what was stability is instability. And that's not just from like the home, the family life. It could also be the school. So imagine, you know, with COVID, right? We talked about COVID and it was like, what's going on? What to expect? That was the life of a foster, a child in foster care every day. Yeah. Who, who are these advocates? Where, where do they, where are they being recruited from and how are they trained? They are, I call them angels on earth and they are recruited in the community. They're community members with a breath of interest, diversity, ages, gender, gender orientation, ethnicity, everything. Because the common thing that they have is, I just want to make a difference. I can I can invest 15 hours a month, not 15 hours a week, but 15 hours a month to like text a child to be with them. They're trained through, we have a really good training system where it is, they come for about a 34, 35 hour training. It's hybrid. Some of it's online and some of it's in person because we, it's in person is because we have actually children in the foster care system who come and speak about their experience. We also have current advocates who can be real and share. It's like, this is how it is. And this is what you're going to do. And they all say, There'll be a lot of emotions. It'll be a roller coaster. But at the end of the day, what's really making a difference, the difference is on me. So it is life-changing for the better for all our advocates. Okay. And do these advocates stay with the kid as long as they're in the foster care system? Or is there some turnover, you know, over time? Because I imagine some advocates might have more time to volunteer and then their lives change. How often do we see turnover with clients, with their advocates? That's a really good question. We ask that our advocates stay a minimum of 18 months. And the reason for that 18 months is historically within that 18 months, especially with the younger children, say under the age of 10, they are reunited or adopted with a family, the younger ones, right? There's, And then the older children 13 and up may not be, they may age out of the system. And we've had both where the advocates, there may be a turnover, but many of them, because it's a relationship that developed, they stay on no matter how challenging life may be like, you know, job, unless they're moving out of the area, we have many who have stayed on for years, who will see them who at the age of 13, and, you know, school wasn't emphasized, but here, you know, come in at a 0.5 GPA and six years later, seeing that youth walk across that stage and the advocate can take it like, we did this, truly we did this. And it's not unusual where we had actually a former foster youth share her story with, we had an event And she said, you know, I came into the foster care system at 11. She was assigned to CASA at 13. And that CASA would say, you can do this. But what she was hearing, the voices of 
you know what, you're a foster youth, you're not going to amount to everything, you're going to drop out. And what her CASA was saying, oh, no, you can do this, I will help you. What do you want to do? And let me let me help you. And together, that same youth has grown up. She's now 20, about to be 21. And she is double majoring at Fresno State to become one, a social worker, because that's who helped her and she wants to help others and also psychology. And she has said, would not happen if it wasn't someone just like the adults in our lives, right? who says, you can do this. Life is hard, but let me help you. And that's what, right, every young child, young people need. Yeah, absolutely. Let's dig into a little bit of rights issues. Do children have specific rights? Yes, they do. What are those rights? A right to be safe, a right to uh, have access, you know, to be represented in the courts, to be the voice that their voice is heard. Yeah. And sometimes I think it's gets complicated because parents have, you know, rights, parental rights, and then children have rights. And when those mix up or there's there's conflicts between those rights, I guess, then it gets complicated. Can you talk about how those can occasionally conflict in the work you do? Yes. So I should say that there were, as I mentioned, 3,000 foster youth in between Fresno and Madera County. CASA serves a little more than 10%. And it's like, Wama, why, why only 10%? It's because, as I had mentioned, that many of them, one, are reunited or adopted. The other thing is, we know that if children are removed from their home, there may be family members who immediately step in parents, aunts, uncles. So the ones we have may not, do not necessarily have it. So where there's neglect or abuse, they are removed from the home so that they could be safe. The parents do have a right, but we want to ensure that the child is safe. So before there is a reunification, if that's the route, then the parents will, by court order, perhaps need to go to anger management and complete those classes. Perhaps it it is for an addiction and to successfully complete those classes. Hmm. So it's Um, kind of like if it's like we're talking about a contract you know, parents have a majority of the rights over their child until they void the contract by committing a crime like child abuse or something like that. And then that kind of triggers a process of like, let's look at the child's rights here. But before that, because I think in in the United States, there's a a lot of emphasis on parental rights. And we're going to talk in a second about the United Nations Convention on Children's Rights and how we are the only developed country to not ratify that. Even though we've signed it, we refuse to put it to the Senate to ratify. So it feels like in the United States, there's a lot of emphasis, whether it's in the homeschool movement or different movements, to emphasize parents' rights, sometimes at the expense of children's rights. You know, and it's interesting because foster youth, and unfortunately, I don't have the information in front of me, but there is a lengthy list of rights for the foster youth. I would be more than happy once I receive it, I'll email it to you. Wonderful, wonderful. And then you can talk about it. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So we know that, and this is a study that I think was put out by either the Department of Justice, I can get the, the actual citation, but somewhere like 80% of children in foster care suffer from mental health distress or illness is, and then people will draw conclusions that foster care system is just awful, but it seems like it's that's correlation and causation that like, if you're in foster care, you've come from a terrible situation, but at the same time, we know that there are foster families that aren't the best environment for kids. And so how does this special advocate play a role in the foster family situation? That's a good question. And right, it's always like a small percentage that ends up being the representation in in people's minds. So the CASA advocate is independent of all this, right? And is able to be the eyes and ears from the child's point of view 
of being able to have that relationship and making the home visit just like a social worker will. Okay. But it's there's that relationship where that child may be a little more open about sharing. And it's also building a relationship and, and seeing how things are with so many paid people around this youth. Because once the child is removed from foster care, all of a sudden, there's an attorney assigned to them, therapists, resource parents, and a litany of others. It also goes to show that how important this CASA is for them. You had mentioned something earlier, and my apologies. What was it that you started off with? The trauma. I was, I was talking about kind of correlation and causation between is is foster creating this mental distress or are they coming in with it? It's probably a little bit of both in some situations, but it seems yes. like, you know, like if you're in foster care, you're coming from a, a distressing situation. Right. How did they enter it in the first place? And let's talk about the trauma that can fall at that is experienced as a child and it's long term. Right. So imagine being for severely neglected and or abused, removing them. So there was the trauma that was experienced and it may not have been just a one time incident. Right. It's like it by the time it is reported it's because someone had suspected it. And so how long has it been going on? So there's the abuse right there. Mm-hmm. And then they come into the system. It's like, what was it like for them to be removed? And you're seven, eight years old, or even a teenager, doesn't matter what age, you are physically removed from the home that you're familiar with from the items that you have, your familiar bed, right? Your room. And again, too, if you have, if you were having to be removed from your school and the friends, just your normal routine, all of a sudden is turned upside down. Well, that in itself is trauma. And so, yes, you're absolutely right. The long-term effects can be, you know, homelessness down the road. Education, the the percentage, not being able to graduate, getting the education. They there's a study of 86 to 93%, as high as 93% of human trafficking victims at one time has been in the foster care system. Yeah. That is right, 86 to 93%. And this the it's a smaller percentage for homelessness. I think it's a little above 50% of those who have are homeless right now is that they have also spent time in the foster care system. So CASA comes in and tries to be, not tries, but actually comes in and it's like, look, I am coming in. I know you had the trauma. We trained every single one of our advocates during COVID in adverse childhood experiences. I mean, we didn't need it at that level until COVID and we noticed There's a lot of self-harm discussion of depression. So we try and say, okay, what is it that we can do? And it's the connection. I think it's connection, whether we've been in the foster care system or not, we know that, right? It's a sense of belonging, a sense of someone that cares for me. And CASA does all that and the advocacy. Yeah. So I, you know, I work in education and sometimes we'll have meetings where we'll be discussing a student and my perspective, and I'm no longer a classroom teacher, but I was at one point, I will have a particular perspective on a student and maybe their counselor has another perspective and the school psychologist has one. And so what happens when say a special advocate has a different perspective than say the social worker assigned to the case and the social worker might view them as, oh, you're a volunteer. I have the education and the background. And so my decision-making should take priority. Is that something that happens or are they usually able to kind of work together on projects like this? It's all that, all, right? It depends on the situation and the individuals. So yes, at an IEP, right, we want to convene all the different voices to the table because each one has a different perspective, Right. Uh, yes, it may, it, and it could very well be like the counselor doesn't necessarily agree with the social worker or the CASA. But the bottom line is, I think we all come together 
and say, this is what I see in terms of the strength. And here's what the students slash youth or child has shared with me. It will continue with that discussion and we have to right, agree to disagree, but what is the best? What is in the best interest of this youth? That's what's the conversation. And then of course, reconvening and doing a checkup along the lines, knowing that whatever plan may be in place, it is one that is might be the best decision for right now, but may evolve to something else. Yeah. What percentage of your clients are adolescents? I know adolescents have the hardest time being placed in foster homes. How do you help with adolescents and what percentage of your clients are adolescents? I'm going to give you a pre and a post COVID response, right? Because okay. okay. it has changed. Um, prior to 2020, it was easily and consistently a third, a third being zero to five, six to 12, 13 to 18. After 2020, actually during 2020, we noticed that the zero to five, for the most part, were insulated from the impact of COVID, right? They didn't have to change schools or anything like that. And the, the peers. During COVID, we shifted to the school-aged children to where right, we purchased desks, actual individual student desks, lamps, and padded chairs, knowing that they were doing online Zoom school. And we did that. We never had to do it before because they went to school for that. And everything was portable because we knew that, you know, anytime a, a foster youth may be moved to a different location and we wanted them to have their school supplies, which meant school furnishings during COVID. So the shift was more towards school age, probably seven on up with the emphasis of 13 to 18. Now, post-COVID, is that we are going back to serving the zero to five because I'm a former early care and education person, and I believe that we can do a lot of intervention at that age. At the same time, we've expanded services for those who are 18 plus because we are now three years past COVID and my 18-year-olds are now 21 in the foster care system or they aged out. So it's almost going to back to a 25% equal percentage. But keep in mind, we are picking up 18 plus. So what does that mean? Where those who have aged out are 18 plus, we want to make sure that they can be independent, right? Mm -hmm. So that means we have a wonderful partnership with the mayor's initiative of one Fresno City Employment for Youth. So that means we contracted with the city. We actually, here's evolving, where we assist the youth to apply, to get ready for their interview, to accompany them to all the way up to being employed. Mm -hmm. And there are times, right, where it's like, you know what? I, I didn't go to work. Then they don't call in. And then two, three days goes by and they don't show up for work. And then they think, I just blew it. I'm going to get fired. I'm just not going to show up anymore. And I was like, wait, stop. And right as a parent or an adult, and now our advocates are stepping in, stepping in that gap. They're saying, no, 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 no. You need one to own this. Two, this is what the program is for. The conversation we had in preparing for this program and the contract is like, you need to understand that sometimes our foster youth, because of the trauma and because of the lack of parenting of some decision making, this may happen. They said, that's okay. Yeah. Well, I so think that's a wonderful to- balance of compassion and accountability. And it's always hard to balance those. It can be really hard because you just, you know, there's certain situations where you, Maybe they should be held accountable, but you need to have some grace in those moments. And finding that balance, I think, is super tough. And I'm so glad you brought up transition because, I mean, some of the stats you were pulling up earlier were super important. And then the other stats about how many foster care kids end up either arrested. I think the number was 70% of youth that were in foster care homes 
will be arrested at least once by the age of 26. And then I think one fifth of the prison population in the United States are foster, former foster care kids. And so I think that transition. So what, from your perspective, what's the hardest part? Is it, is it maintaining the job post foster care experience or what, what do you think creates that situation where so many of them are put in the criminal justice system so quickly? Well, what would be right? The support system is given to them until, as I mentioned about aging out, right? And they can continue on and be part of the child welfare system if they pursue higher education. And I had mentioned earlier, it's like early on, perhaps academics was not emphasized and we celebrate in a major way when they graduate high school. And, you know, they're saying, you know, I really, I, I'm done. I don't want to do this at least, right? Even for all of us, it's like, we, we, I think we want a gap year, right? And for them, they they need something like that as well. But they're like, no, I want to, I want to pursue something else. Yeah. But how do they go about doing that? Because one is they may not have, if you're removed immediately, do they have their social security card available to apply for a job? Do they have their birth certificate? No one leaves with a birth certificate in hand typically, because, right, you're not thinking about it unless you're planning in advance to take it with you. So without those two documents, that might be a challenge to even apply for a job. The other thing is like, how how do they go about applying for that? Where, Where are the jobs available other than the fast food at 18 years old? And the and third would be who is encouraging them to think beyond mm-hmm. tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Well, it is it is weird that like what we know about brain development is that you know it's not fully that prefrontal cortex is not fully myelinated until you're 26, uh, but we expect a lot of 18 year olds who are just one year out of high school yes. uh, to make all these big decisions, and you know they're still learning and growing, and so I love that there is transition services. Cause that seems like that's, you know, I mean, that's what college is for a lot of kids is like a transition service, you know, and that's, and if you don't go to college, where is that transition service? And so in some ways in America, we've made transition services about class, you know, who goes to college gets kind of transition services in some capacity, but what you're doing, I think is, is providing that for the kids that need it the most. And so I, I think that's wonderful. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the origins of CASA and how it grew. So, before 1977, who who would advocate for kids? I mean, were they just on their own in the court system? And I think that was probably, well, of course, right? The system was was there for the social workers. And, and they're good. They're, they're great. And they're dedicated at the social workers, Department of Social Services. However, you have to think about the caseload. Yeah. So as one social worker may have 30 cases. So 30 cases may translate to 45 children, right? Because it's sibling sets. It could even be more. So for us, as I said in the beginning, it's like one CASA, one foster youth. So there's that communication piece. So prior to 1977, it was the social worker. And I imagine you think about it, Maybe there wasn't, I'm sure there wasn't the numbers that we have now in the mm-hmm. foster care system. Yeah, that's fair. So there was a there was less of a service, but also maybe a little bit less of a need, maybe. And then who is I'm I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, David Suckup or Judge David Suckup? Who is he? Yes. Yeah, so he was the judge out of Washington in you're in 1977. And he's right, he's looking at the, the cases for children in foster care. And he's, he's thinking the same thing. It's like, I don't know enough to make these important decisions about these children. So he thought, you know what? I'm going to look at maybe getting some volunteers to do just that, to be able to assign to some of these youth and be able to report back like on a semi-annual basis, a two-page report that kind of sums up things that he needs to know. And so from that five, it has grown actually to a national CASA. And in California alone, there are 44 CASAs 
44 in, in the counties, 44 county casas. How fast did that develop? Was that pretty quick or did it, was it gradual over time? You know, I imagine it was gradual and then it always hits that pinnacle of yeah. when it just exponentially grew. Tipping and, point, yeah, yeah. Right? So then for Fresno, we were established in 1996, 10 years we were able to expand to two uh, in 2006 to Madera County. Okay. And why isn't this just a government service? It's just part of like social workers are like part of the County health department, if you will. I'm going to take you with me as we advocate. Why is it it? <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's a, I mean, it's a loaded question in some ways, but why, why, why do you think politically it isn't? You know what, what I appreciate it from my point of view is that truly as a standalone where we don't receive funding from any of the those places is that one we're able to be truly independent mm. in our views so the court that's what the court provides to us i had mentioned earlier like we do receive funding from one fresno but that's to develop programs for our youth it is not by any means like to employ us in, right? We employ our own. So I, that's what I, so we're a nonprofit. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about measurements and impact. So what is the judicial council and how does it determine funding needs for each community? It is based on a county size, uh, the number of foster youth that we have in our area. And, you know, our needs and our needs certainly is great in the Central Valley. And when I say Central Valley, it stretches from Merced down to Kern County. And that, if you think about it, could be the economic needs as well as the number of children in our foster care system. The Judicial Council, what are the metrics they use to evaluate your success? Because, you know, I, my favorite my favorite phrase is you make what you measure, right? And so if, if you're measuring certain things, that's what you're going to end up producing or people are going to focus on. So what's being measured to determine your efficacy? One would be as we identify our needs, and I can tell you for the last few years, it's been the need of meeting our children with their mental health and also trying to address knowing the PD, I call it the children experience PTSD, right, from their trauma yeah. and how we can best address that. Um, and then now moving as the children are getting older to being young adults, how to set them up for further excess, success. So for me, and every county may be different, is that this is what I write to. This is what I'm trying to address. This is the funding that I would apply to as I move forward. The other thing is too, it's judicial significantly says, how are you going to train our advocates? So really that's what judicial wants. It's like, okay, yes, we want to do the recruitment and we want to be able to train. And it's not just the 40 hours of training that I was mentioning earlier. It's it's because otherwise it's just one time and you know, you're with us for, for 10 years. There's no other training. No, there's ongoing training on a monthly basis so that the advocates can convene and discuss certain case issues and as a group of advocates for that age group, be able to problem solve together to offer support. And then on a whole, on a quarterly basis is perhaps training on educational rights, on the dangers of fentanyl, just it's, it's based on the need for training. Okay. So last year, California lawmakers set about set aside about $60 million in the state budget to support CASA. And we're facing a bit of a budget deficit. So Newsom has talked about clawing back some of that money. How would that impact you? It would have significantly impact us as because right as any good, and I see myself as being the CEO of a company that needs to be financially solvent. Yeah. And so we were able to receive, so that money is actually divided up between the 44 counties. Okay. And so the portion of it was $20 million a year. And for CASA locally, 
it would in turn be about 384,000 for the next three years. Okay. I planned on what I needed based on that 384,000, which was for one, it was updating our website. Two is to the retention of my nonprofit staff who are here because they have great passion. But at the same time, I need to make sure that it's parable and pay, parity and pay, so that they stay with me for the turnover. And then also, too, to ensure that I have a great marketing plan because of uh, attrition of advocates. Having said that, Jordan Mattox, I am pleased to say that the governor just this morning, like, what? as we say, yes, I know, as of what is today, Friday, May 12th has released his May revised budget and he put that line item back in for Oh, coffee. thank God. Well, that's, that is, that's amazing news. Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. You know, this is so relevant because I think I heard about it at, like at 11 o'clock today. Mm, wow. Well, and I, you know, for the record, you know, I state budgets are massive and complicated, and there's competing interest groups that all have reasonable justifications for why they need a portion of the funding. And if we're facing a budget deficit, then that has cuts have to happen somewhere. And so we don't know necessarily the reasons. We might know some of them. We might speculate, but the good news is that the money is there. And adding to that too, uh -huh. right? I think this is why both elected officials on both sides of the party says, wait a minute, what we're doing just as we're discussing, it's like, but CASA is doing intervention. Mm -hmm. And so we either invest in the youth now, or we're going to address trauma, PDS, the, the homelessness, mm -hmm. the mental health issues. Yeah. And in incarcerated individuals, you incarcerated, know, which, is, yes. which are, it's very expensive to incarcerate people in California. And not only that, they're human beings too. And so preventing them from going to those places, it should be a number one priority. So you talked about retention. So how do you speculate you can increase retention of your volunteers? I mean, what, what strategies do you need to use in order to, 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 Get volunteers that'll stick around for a while. Is is burnout common among volunteers and advocates? It is amongst advocates and my staff. So if you can imagine you have a six-year-old child yourself, right? And your advocate or your aunt, uncle, grandparent, and you're reading about the severe abuse of another six-year-old and what they're going through. You can't help but empathize, not sympathize, but empathize what they're going through and trying because it's it's like you were saying, it's not a quick fix in any of this and it takes time. And sometimes when it doesn't go quite the way it wants or if there's a setback of how a child is feeling, it's emotionally taxing. It's sad. Yeah. But so that's where secondary trauma comes in. So what we've been trying to do is one, we've always been encouraging them, but we call it truly the journey of care. And care is an acronym for compassion, affirmation, respite, and empowerment. It is for both my staff and advocates to come together on an evening to like, we're just going to plant succulents and relax, mm -hmm. just to relax. Wow. We're going out to, let's see, with an escape room and just have fun and be competitive. But may I say we're so competitive that it's not that relaxing, <laughs> but, it's, but it's fun, right? And yeah. it's also the, so they don't feel like they're on a case and hitting their head against the wall it's like, you know what, let's, let's take time to say that one, we appreciate you Two, it's like, let's get together and just, just relax, just take our brains 
from give us a, a little break from that. The other things too, we want to support our advocates because they're unpaid volunteers. Mm-hmm. And what they do when I said they spend time, they really do spend time with them. But you know, to take them out for simply, you know, a quick meal, that's easily $25 now, right? It's it's gone up in price. And the other thing is like to take them to go do something fun, to go bowling to take them to Dave's and Buster, whatever it is, an activity that they can do together. So there's been two things. We've had campaigns where we said, you know, if you can help contribute to, in this case, we'll call it summer fun that's coming up. And we we will give out gift cards to our advocates so they can spend time with the youth. And it's not out of their own pockets because then, right, we're not going to be able to recruit and retain our our advocates. And so that's been something new in the last few years. Last year, we started the summer fund program and, and we've gone out to wonderful businesses that are children friendly and they've donated or we've had community sponsors, just individual donors to say, hey, use this so that, you know, you can, so our advocates would be able to use those funds Because, right, we remember for 10 or 11 weeks of our summer childhood of having some great memories. And they didn't have to cost a lot, but it did cost. And this is what we want to do is to take our youth out and create memories. And whether it's as a group with all the youth, which we've done paint parties, messy but fun, but also individually so that when they go back to school, it's like, so how was your summer? They could say, oh my goodness, you know, I was able to go fishing. I was able to go to part of the, I was able to ride a horse. And so that's what CASA does. It's yes, the things that are necessary and so very important, but it's also being able to retain the advocates and create memories together for the youth. That's wonderful. I want to take a step back and ask you kind of about perspective. So whether whatever profession you work in, you get a particular perspective on a city, right? When you work in education, you get a particular perspective on families and certain elements of the city that, you know, if you work at a car dealership, you're not going to see. What perspective do you have on Fresno now working in CASA? Like how has it maybe altered your view of the city? And what is What is your kind of 20,000 foot view on Fresno based on the experiences that you work in? You ask really good questions. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, you know, I too uh, was in education as well, 28 years to be specific. And uh, during those 28 years, eight years, I served as a board member for CASA. So it was like something I did on the side of my desk. And in 2018, when I became the executive director, it's on my brain 150%, 24-7. The perspective has evolved, right? Is that a fair statement? Because we all yeah. should evolve our, our perspective as we learn more. And at first, what it was like, I, I think I cried more than ever the first year because as a teacher, you had that sensitivity and compassion and and you want to take them all under your wings like Mother Hubbard. And, and it's looking at what can I do individually for this youth? And we do that with our CASAs one-on-one. And as I've been in this position for five years, it is more of what can I do on a larger system? So not just for the foster youth that I have within our CASA organization, but countywide. And what I have seen in the past five years, specifically probably in the last three, I call it the galvanizing of the foster care system that puts the child in the center. And what that means is we all have a part of the foster youth, like the education part of the the foster youth is in school. You were mentioning about the pipeline from foster care to prison. So now we have the DAs and probation and also juvenile justice, right, involved. We also have the therapists. 
it's just a matter, and, and of course, CASA, and of course, Department of Social Services, the social workers. CASA and DSS has always worked really well with all these different partners. But now, this it's called Cradle to Career Initiative from the county. It's convening 15 different agencies together, linking together to talk about what individually our agencies have as a resource that's a gap for us that we can link with someone else. And let's focus on the things that we notice with children in foster care. They need to be successful, right? To be able to be on grade level and to go on to aspire like any other typically developing child. They need stability in their home. So therefore, let's do a better job of keeping the child in foster care in one resource home and not move them during the school year. Because we know every time they have a movement, it's going to set them back academically. And I'm guessing also emotionally too. Let's also look at what could individuals like CASA would be able to do in order to provide this information to our partners. Maybe we need to get more involved with juvenile justice. With the education system, let's connect and see what we can do as being educational rights holder, right? To be able to attend the IEP. I'm sure you'll spell it out, individualized education plan for the foster youth. All these conversations that happens amongst each other instead of in silos. Before we close with books, Let's, I just want to give you the opportunity to share a story of success, a story that maybe is special to you of how a CASA volunteer was able to help a child be successful. You know, I have 350 stories annually. So to select one, uh, okay, one I did share about the former foster youth and who's now about to graduate from college. Another one I find very special to me is that we had a young young teenager who entered the system and again it was the gpa the self-esteem we worked through that and then in the course of her being in the foster care system she was diagnosed with cancer and and like any young child it was like we have that sense of immortality, right? And she went to to get her her chemo treatment, and we know it's it's not easy afterwards, right? It's 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 a challenge. And she says, "I don't want to do it anymore. I, I'm not going to go for any more treatments." And the advocate says, "I'm I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you every step away. I know it's hard." And, and, you know, with, with kids, you just let them vent and let them have their feels. And then you wait until it's the appropriate time. It's like, let's do this. Let's do this together because you're not going to be left alone. So the advocate accompanied, I'm going to call child, to, to get the treatment and was there in turn and with the social worker in planning the celebration when they were able to hit that bell to say, you're cancer, you are in remission. So that story will stay with me a long time because can you imagine as a child or even as adult getting one, the news, and we know what cancer is, but what does that mean for a child? Like I hear of it, but what is that exactly? And then having to go through that journey that's not short, that's a length of time, that's not easy after the treatment's not feeling well, wanting to give up, not giving up, ringing that bell. And she went on to college and she's about to graduate. That's amazing. And that's probably, I mean, there's really nothing more fulfilling in life than being able to work to help someone like that, which is why you know, if anyone's listening that has thought about doing work like this, like there, it'll, it'll become the single 
greatest experience you'll ever have working with a kid and and helping them through this process. So I really encourage people to to think about it if they're interested. We always close with books though. What are two or three books you'd recommend to the audience? Oh, that's a great question. Okay, my all-time favorite that I still I read and I still reference to is called the Medici effect. Okay. And the Medici effect takes for instance, right? I was in in education and for 28 years and then to say, okay, why would I want to step into the role of nonprofit? Because if, you know, nonprofit is not just the work we serve for children, that makes a common link, but it is a business, as I said, because it's, it's a lot of like, please help, please help CASA, please, please be an advocate, please help donate. And the Medici effect was having to draw my experience as an educator into a nonprofit and the strength of it being that because I was a former educator and I know children and what they need and how they just one individual can make a difference, there is success. And that book is just gives example after example of how you don't have to like to be an advocate, right? You don't need to be into law to understand about the social work or of children in foster care or be it necessary a former social worker to understand. No, if you have it intrinsically inside you, a passion, that's what it is, a passion, and you can transfer it to a totally new field, that's going to be more powerful than anything else. Wonderful. Well, if people are interested in becoming an advocate, where where can they find more information? Website has lots of information, and that would be, of course, www.casafresnomadera.org. So that's casafresnomadera.org, all one word. And you click on the little link that says, find out more to be an advocate. And it'll take you right there. We offer information sessions, not only on online where you can listen, we recorded it, but if you'd like, and I always believe in the one-on-one person-to-person. So we also offer trainings or information sessions to learn about it every Wednesday at noon and then every other Saturday at 10 a.m. And we do that in Zoom as well as we can do it in person. Wonderful. Well, thank you for talking with me, Wilma. This has been fascinating. And I I just love the work you're doing for our community. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you for this opportunity to share. Fresno's best. Thanks for listening, folks. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash Fresno's best. We'll see you next time.